You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Happy New Year, Prashant. Good to be with you in 2018. Same to you. Well, I figured we'd take this first podcast of the year, which, by the way, is our 150th episode. We've been doing this for a while now, and four years in February. Anyways, I thought we'd take this episode and um, do kind of what a lot of places have been doing and just kind of, you know, talk a bit about our expectations for this year. Um, the significance of 2018, I think, broadly speaking, in Asia, um, you know, there are several big picture questions. Um not the least, you know, being what is going to happen on the Korean Peninsula after an incredibly tense year. How will the United States relationship develop with China? Speaking of the United States, how will the second year of the Trump administration's America first foreign policy look in Asia in 2018? The second year of an administration is generally when, um, well, normally you'd have you know, seen appointments filled out much earlier and at least everybody getting used to the the ropes so to speak but uh the administration has finally filled out major um asia posts or, or at least nominated people ambassador posts still remain open but but we're starting to see a, a a something of a foreign policy bureaucracy take place take shape again um and also we'll talk a bit about you know uh just regional issues um the situation in southeast asia after an important year defined by terrorism shaky progress on the south china sea disputes um, and of course, we'll talk a bit about South Asia and general geopolitical issues in the region. So it's a, it's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, but I figured just for organizational purposes, we'd maybe use Asia's natural geography and sweep from east to west, roughly. Um, so why don't we begin with the Korean Peninsula, uh, which is kind of at the top of a lot of people's agenda. I don't think uh, matters were helped too much by Donald Trump's tweet the day before we taped this podcast, um, talking about the size of his nuclear button and Kim Jong-un's nuclear button, um, leaving aside the fact that nobody actually launches nuclear weapons with buttons. Um, you know, it, it raised the temperature at a time when Kim Jong-un presumably has been trying to um, bring things to a, a new place in 2018. Um, you know, uh, the New Year's address, I think, Prashant, this may be a good place to start. Um, what were you, you know, what was your uh, reaction to, you know, what Kim Jong-un laid out in that address? Yeah, I think, you know, you, you wrote a piece shortly after the address that sort of summarized, um, you know, the, the, the key points, which is, you know, first, obviously, there was a lot of continued bluster about, North Korea's growing capabilities, but I think the the, the striking note um, in the address, which which folks picked up on, was also um, there was that opening diplomatically with um, that he left open with South Korea and potentially the Winter Olympics, which we talked about um, in the previous podcast as well as an opening for potential talks or some kind of engagement. So I think it, it you know it's not surprising. I think a lot of us sort of you know saw this as. Uh, Kim Jong-un sort of trying to pick off uh, South Korea within the context of the alliance and the sort of his version of decoupling. Um, but I think, it, you know, it was an interesting thing because the bigger picture, as you correctly mentioned in the intro, is when you have uh, U.S. President Donald Trump, uh, you know, talking about sizes of nuclear buttons and continued bluster on the U.S. side, um, 
that opening that Kim Jong Un leaves with respect to engagement and and that diplomatic side, you know, makes the U.S. look like less of a reasonable party in the room relative to North Korea. Obviously, you know, the, I don't want to sort of um, you know dramatize the situation. The North Koreans are clearly out of step here when it comes to um, nuclear norms and and peace and stability in the region. But um, you know, Trump's bluster kind of complicates the picture, and and I think Kim Jong Un sort of understands that. You know, there is some uh, room for maneuvering here, and I think he's using that. And it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, obviously, this is just sort of an opening gambit, um, but that will be interesting to see in in 2018. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it appears that there has there is reciprocity to Kim's offer, and next Wednesday, representatives from both sides sh- should meet at the Peace Village at Panmunjom uh, in the in the DMZ mm-hmm. to uh, hopefully hash out some sort of agreement that would allow North Korean athletes, uh, which by the way would just be two figure skaters, to participate in the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics. Um, but you know, I mean, I think one of the things that's been really striking to me this week, uh, as you know, something of a longtime Korea watcher, is just that uh, how familiar a lot of this is. I mean, you know, this um, difficulties within the alliance, especially, have never been new, especially within the context of a a liberal-minded pro-engagement party in Seoul, paired with a more hardline um, denuclearization first government in the United States. You know, we saw this in the early 2000s um, with uh, Kim Dae-jung and No Mu-yeon in the sunshine years when the South Koreans pursued engagement and inter-Korean rapprochement with Kim Jong-il. Um, and we have something of that now. I mean, obviously, I don't want to overstate it because I think Moon Jae-in uh, should be given some credit for um, acting actually quite pragmatically over the past year. Um, I mean, he entered office in North Korea immediately, uh, you know, cranked um, cranked the velocity up to 60. You know, I mean, they went, they just went wild. Uh, they showed okay. off the Hwasong 12, the Hwasong 14 ICBM, and then the rest of the year um, was particularly crazy, I think, with the overflights of Japan and the Hwasong 15 eventually. Um, so I think, you know, this is all quite familiar and, um, you know, I wrote, I wrote a column, uh, for South China Morning Post where I think, you know, I made the, you know, I, I pointed out the, the kind of decoupling angle to this and why it is good to remain wary, but, you know, um, what you said about the Trump administration not recognizing the South Koreans, um, kind of agency in the situation, I think, you know, really reverberates. And actually, you know, even beyond Trump, I actually thought that, Nikki Haley's statement um, yesterday yep. on uh, January 2nd was a little short-sighted. I mean, you know, she said that the U.S. would treat the talks as effectively illegitimate if they happened without North Korea agreeing to denuclearization preconditions, which I think, you know, not only shows a lack of knowledge of just how previous inter-Korean talks have happened, but also just, I think, is is frankly, you know, damaging to the alliance in a different way. There has to be a give and take uh, between Seoul and Washington on on what kinds of issues can be reserved for the inter-Korean agenda and what other issues can be reserved for the broader regional question, where I think the denuclearization issue um, will just have to sit, just given the realities. Uh, I don't think that, you know, and also just to talk about the flip side, the North Koreans, I think, you know, they're going to be asking for quite a bit. They're probably going to ask Moon to go to the United States and ask for a cancellation or a significant reduction of the joint military exercises coming up. But I think they know deep down that there is a limit to that. Um, so, so this is all, you know, quite familiar. I don't think we should be expecting, you know, any kind of major breakthrough, but I think um, any kind of move towards peace um, or, or, you know, not even peace, but just the appearance of calm and North Korean athletes participating in the Olympic Games, I think can be a very positive, soothing bomb in a moment of intensely high tensions, especially after late 2017. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the other thing is that, you know, as we're seeing these these uh, diplomatic uh, endeavors and, and potential outreach, we're, we're also seeing, you know, the, these uh, somewhat arbitrary percentages um, sometimes increasing about the potential for accidental war or conflict to erupt. And I know, you know, we've talked about this extensively in, in previous podcasts, too. But, you know, it is important to, to sort of <laughs> remind listeners that, um, even though the the, the logic for um, you know deliberate escalation and the outbreak of, of violence is something that doesn't make sense for both sides, I mean the the potential for miscalculation is there, and you know serious people who know this issue very well have been following it for a long time um, are, are worried about this, and and we shouldn't you know sort of underestimate the potential for that to happen. Absolutely, I think that's I think that's a good a uh, good place to end our discussion on the Korean Peninsula. Um, moving, moving a little bit further inland, um, I want to talk a bit about China. Um, so 2018, I think, uh, you know, has been set up as the, you know, the, the beginning of the era of uh, Xi Jinping thought after uh, the 19th Party Congress. Uh, you know, we've been led to believe that uh, she has emerged from the 19th Party, uh, the first plenum of the 19th Party Congress as an exceptionally powerful leader, the most powerful in modern China since uh, Deng Xiaoping um, and is is destined to take China's foreign policy in a more assertive direction, um, both within the Belt and Road Initiative, but also with regard to the great power competition with the United States. Um, so I wanted to ask you, uh, what's your what's your readout or expectation of the general direction of U.S.-China ties this year? Where do you think things are going there? Yeah, I think it, it it's hard to, to look at the relationship and, and kind of not be, be worried. I think the, the sort of drumbeat that we're seeing from the Trump administration is that there's going to be some kind of tougher approach uh, towards China. I mean, it, it's important to emphasize, as, as we've done before, that this sort of tough approach towards China is something that people have been talking about um, for years and also it's somewhat delayed from the Trump administration. Um, the, the officials, when they were coming in, were saying that this was going to be adopted. And then, um, you know, North Korea and, and some other related issues kind of delayed it. There was the initial sort of purported bromance between Xi Jinping and, and Donald Trump. Um, but there there is a, a sort of a, a feeling and a sense from the administration based on what they're saying, but also the kind of some of the personnel that they've uh, adapted or, or thought about hiring in the, in the administration that we could see uh, the worsening of U.S.-China tensions. But I think, you know, the key issue here will be where do we see those tensions manifest themselves? I mean, is this just sort of um, some hardening of um, potential uh, economic disputes and the Trump administration hanging out with some kind of trade measures? Or is this something that could also drag in uh, security issues in the South China Sea, which we've talked about, um, or potentially you know, other fronts as well, like, like Taiwan? Um, and I think that's the perspective from the Trump administration. On the flip side with Xi Jinping, uh, we've been talking about, you know, in 2017, the consolidation of his power and authority. And I think the question for 2018 will be, you know, to what end is, is this consolidation for? I mean, it, with Xi Jinping solidifying his authority, is he going to use this to sort of consolidate some of his domestic authority, um, push through some economic reforms, which were tough to push through earlier? Um, or is he going to also react um, overseas in a, in a more international sort of activist fashion on South China Sea and some other issues um, now that his legitimacy um, has increased and his standing has increased within the country. And I, we don't have a clear sense of that, um, but 
I suspect that this is a, a sort of interaction which there will be a lot of movement uh, going into 2018. I think people want to be reassured that the U.S.-China relationship, you know, because it's the most important relationship in, in the world, so to speak, that there will be uh, a case that reasonable heads will, will prevail. But I don't think that uh, that can be assumed in this case. Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the most important questions this year and in coming years will be, you know, what does Xi Jinping want, which is a surprisingly difficult question to answer. I mean, we have we have an idea of Chinese foreign policy priorities. And obviously, we know that the Belt and Road Initiative, especially after the 19th Party Congress, has been elevated um, in its importance in just uh, China's overall state policy. But uh when it comes to narrower questions, uh, the South China Sea, the East China Sea, relations with Japan, relations with the United States, uh, geopolitical competition in Southeast Asia and the Indian Ocean, um, a lot of those questions, I think, will be um, important to watch this year. Um, and of course, you know, there is, uh, you know, the the PLA modernization story, I think, will continue this year. We may see China um, make significant progress with its upcoming indigenous aircraft carriers, which are expected to have uh, nuclear propulsion and electromagnetic catapults. Um, eventually leading up to a carrier force of six uh, by the uh, early to mid 2020s. Um, but, you know, the the area for, I think, conflict between the U.S. and China really should not be underestimated. I mean, one thing we didn't talk about is the uh, the national security strategy document that the Trump administration released at the end of 2017, which really pointed out, you know, both China and Russia, somewhat surprisingly, um, as revisionist powers that are directly threatening the United States. And, you know, I mean, part of me is, you know, not going to fall victim to taking that document too seriously, because obviously we know the president likely has not read it or does not necessarily believe a lot of what that document contained. But it at least tells us about how his advisors will um, will view this arena. And a lot of foreign policy in this administration, I think, will continue to operate on autopilot without necessarily the input of the president, or at least just a rubber stamp from him or approval. Because, um, you know, there is that curious dynamic, too, that I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays out. I mean, the personal rapport between Xi and Trump was surprisingly good in 2017. Uh, that was kind of a major theme throughout the year. Um, if we'd been doing this podcast a year ago, we'd maybe be talking about Trump's, um, you know, surprise phone call with uh, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen. Um, but, you know, now I think really anything could happen um, when it comes to that relationship. So it's uh, it's certainly something to um, watch quite closely this year. Um, right, absolutely. So, uh, you know, moving a little bit further south, before we get to Southeast Asia, uh, I thought we could talk about uh, you know, just maritime disputes broadly. I mean, the situation in the East China Sea, the South China Sea, the Western Pacific, uh, sort of segues from the conversation about PLA modernization. Um, but... Uh, you know, I think maybe a good place to talk is, uh, begin our talk is um, freedom of navigation. Um, in 2017, the Trump administration continued to pay lip service to the idea. Uh, you know, we were both at the Shangri-La dialogue when Mattis made his impassioned defense of freedom of navigation. Trump's um, undelivered remarks at the East Asia summit would have defended freedom of navigation. The administration devolved a degree of authority to Pacific Command to conduct operations with a higher tempo and frequency. Um, I'm also told that there have been unpublicized freedom of navigation operations um, that we haven't heard about um, last year. So there may have been four um, more than the four that were publicized. Um, but broadly, I mean, you know, the South China Sea just really seemed to drop off a cliff last year, uh, or at least things seemed to go in China's favor broadly, right? You had the ASEAN China Code of Conduct um, watered down quite a bit, a fairly milquetoast affair without any binding um, without a binding provision. Um, this was a draft framework. Um, but, you know, where? what's your general expectation for state of affairs in Asia's maritime flashpoints? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think <clears throat> starting with the with the South China Sea in, in, in particular, I think 2017, um, you, you put it exactly right. I mean, the Chinese tried to very deliberately create this narrative that, you know, all is well. I mean, we, we, we agreed to uh, finally uh, talk about uh, a code of conduct and move towards that following the creation of the so-called draft framework. And part of that was brought about by what the Chinese were doing, but part of it was also due to the fact that, the, you know, the Philippines following the election of President Rodrigo Duterte um, also dropped the ball on, on the South China Sea, and it was chairing uh, ASEAN last year as well. And so you, you did see, uh, you know, a little bit of, of that Chinese narrative gaining steam, and I suspect the Chinese have been leaning very heavily on, on Singapore, which is assuming the ASEAN share this year, um, to also follow kind of a similar line to continue this progress on, on the so-called uh, code of conduct and the Chinese trying to make other overtures to make sure that they try to delegitimize um, any kind of perceived external intervention by the United States, Japan, India, other countries. Um, so I suspect you'll, you'll continue to see that dynamic in 2018. I, I think the interesting dynamic um, apart from China that goes on the South China Sea and also this concept of freedom of navigation, which you and I follow quite closely, is, you know, this sort of, you know, quad or quadrilateral um, and how other countries um, can either separately or jointly try to resist or possibly react to um, instances of potential Chinese aggression. I mean, the Chinese island building activity in, 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 in the South China Sea was something that we talked a lot about before. Um, but the trend of militarization that um, the Chinese have been pushing on the South China Sea hasn't gone away. And in fact, there was a lot of fears that that could actually accelerate in 2018 now that Xi Jinping has consolidated uh, domestic power in China. And it, if that happens, things could get quite rough there if we see a potential reaction either from the claimant states or the United States or, or, or other actors as well. So I, I suspect that's kind of where uh, a lot of the action will be in terms of concerns and worries. On the East China Sea, you know, that's the other thing that, that's kind of an, an interesting dynamic because you have this continued dynamic where Chinese presence and activities, and when it increases in certain areas or spheres, um, sometimes it tends to decrease in other spheres. Um, but with Japan and China and the East China Sea, you have this continued dynamic of Japan continuing to be concerned about what the Chinese are doing, and both sides continuing to explore these, you know, ideas of you know crisis management hotline, potential negotiations like that. I don't really see, um, but you know, both views in 2018. Absolutely. Um, I think you summed up actually most everything that I was going to hit on. Um, I think the quad and the Indo-Pacific concept will be a big question to watch. It could be a bust this year. It could have been overly hyped in late 2017, or it could really turn into something. I mean, uh, you know, um, the Malabar exercise we talked about last year, um, I think there's a good chance it might be quadrilateralized uh, in the upcoming year. Well, not formally quadrilateralized, but Australia can be invited to participate as the fourth participant with India's acquiescence, enthusiastic acquiescence. Um, this year, especially after the Doklam dispute last year, I think India is taking quite a different tack on how it responds to Chinese sensitivities on a range of issues. Um, but yeah, I don't think I have anything else to really uh, add on that front. Um, so yeah, I'm mm -hmm. glad you you mentioned Malabar as well because I think the the other sort of I mean we're we're going to move to to South Asia I know and and talk about that conversation separately. But within the maritime space, I think. Um, you know, India's conception of, of the Indian Ocean and its periphery and what the Chinese are doing uh, in the Indian Ocean and in South Asia is, is another interesting dimension to watch as Modi develops his own 
foreign policy. I mean, India's outreach to ASEAN and Southeast Asia continues. Um, but I do think that that Indian Ocean dynamic will be interesting to watch as well, apart from South China Sea and East China Sea. Yeah, absolutely. And we can talk a bit more about that in the South China con- um, in the South Asia context. Um, real quick, uh, do you want to talk a bit about Southeast Asian outlook? And I know, you know, that's a lot of countries to talk about, but uh, I mean, there's a lot going on, uh, you know, democratic regression in Cambodia, uh, cautious democratic um I guess moments of progress in the future in Thailand. Uh, Duterte continues on trilateral coordination in the Sulu Sulawesi Seas. Uh, Singapore's chairmanship, which you hit on a little bit. Um, what's uh, what's there to expect in Southeast Asia this year? Yeah, I think you you hit um, some of the keynotes there. I, I think the big one uh, is is democratic uh, regression or, or perceived democratic re- uh, regression alongside this idea that strong men in Southeast uh, in Southeast Asia are kind of getting their way. Um, and I guess the, the the two biggest illustrations of that is you know Duterte's election and his subsequent uh, progress uh, in 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 the Philippines in terms of consolidating his domestic power. And also Hun Sen in, in Cambodia and, and the crackdown we've seen um, in Cambodia with respect to human rights and, and democracy. I think, you know, there, there's going to be um, sort of continued concern about some of the elections that we're going to see this year. Um, you've got uh, national elections in, in Malaysia and Cambodia, Thailand, potentially, where we're, as, yeah. as usual, not really sure whether it's actually going to be held or not. And then you have local elections leading up to uh, presidential elections in Indonesia in, in, in 2019. So some key uh, elections going on. But the the theme throughout, um, whether it's with Najib in Malaysia or Hun Sen in, in Cambodia or with respect to Prayut and, and the military regime in Thailand, will be um, to what extent are we going to see rollbacks uh, in terms of de- democratic progress or uh, more regression, or whether we'll actually see some transitions in in favor of the opposition. And I think the the latter scenario is is you know at on the surface the more hopeful scenario, but it's also one which is is more uncertain. I mean, if we do see an outcome in the Cambodian election where it's more contested and we see protests in the street, I mean, there is a potential for uh, violence there. Similarly in Malaysia, I mean, uh, you know, the sense is that Najib will do quite well and, and, and win the election easily. But if there's, um, you know, potential violence out there, that could uh, be another source of concern. I, I think the other big thing in, in Southeast Asia to watch for is um, th- this notion of identity politics or extremism, you, know, you take your pick of phrase or, or, or word, um, is gaining traction in the region, whether you look at Indonesia and the sense that you know Islam is being um, used by extremist and, and radical voices to kind of uh, forge a narrative that goes against what President Joko Jokowi Widodo is, is trying to do in the country um, with respect to domestic Form, and then in Myanmar, where you're seeing, you know, sort of this notion of, you know, broadly speaking, Buddhist nationalism at the expense of the minority Muslim Rohingya, which we we've talked about on this podcast before. I think that's that's the other big thing. Um, yeah, I, I think that you, I'm glad you brought up the the sort of um, trilateral patrols in the Sulu Sulawesi Sea. That that's I think another interesting trend where we see, you know, Singapore is having the ASEAN chairmanship uh, this year. And you know the Singaporeans have you know, true to form lined up a series of regional initiatives that they'll look to make progress on. So there will be some things that happen on the regional front, but on the sub-regional front, there are some interesting 
things to watch too. I mean, the Sulu-Sulu SEC patrols in the maritime space is one, but also, you know, with respect to the Mekong countries, um, which is where China comes in and some of its uh, economic uh, progress that it's making with Southeast Asian states, that sub-regional component, I suspect, is going to be an important space to watch for 2018. Absolutely, Prashanth. And I think, uh, you know, just one final note to hit on uh, the terrorism point is that I think the experience of the Marawi siege in 2017 um, will have been instructive. Uh, You know, we observed a few intelligence failures in the early days of the siege, especially about um, foreign fighters. um, And, you know, Southeast Asian countries have um, and still remain uh, concerned about returning fighters from the Islamic State's Middle East Caliphate, which uh, remains in tatters today after a successful campaign to expunge um, Western Iraq and Eastern Syria um, of their presence. So I think that's, again, uh, going to be something to uh, watch for closely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think we can close out our uh, discussion of uh, you know trends to watch with South Asia, uh, which is obviously a a large uh, region to take on uh, in a in a short amount of time. But I want to you know kind of peg our conversation here to. Um, Obviously, nothing else but a tweet by Donald Trump. I believe it was one maybe his first foreign policy tweet in 2018, uh, where he lashed out at Pakistan. Um, and we've seen him lash out at Pakistan before. He did it in his August address at Afghanistan strategy. Um, but this was exceptionally strong uh, language from him, uh, condemning Pakistan for hosting America's enemies and terrorists and giving them safe haven. Uh, these complaints are old, but I think it was jarring to hear it from an American president like this. We're still waiting for confirmation that the United States is going to probably uh, withhold payment of a uh, $255 million tranche of foreign military financing. And it looks like U.S.-Pakistan relations are set for a rocky period. And obviously, this has all been met with quite a bit of enthusiasm in uh, New Delhi, where I think the uh, the foreign military financing cut is already being reported as fact, uh, even though the White House still has to confirm it. Um, but it's probably going to happen. But... Uh, a lot's going on in South Asia, right? I mean, uh, India-Pakistan relations remain rocky. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you talked a bit about the Indian Ocean milieu, um, Sri Lanka's um, transfer of the Hambantota port to China was completed in late 2017. Indian strategists remain concerned about China's Indian Ocean presence, especially with the Djibouti base now operationalized and Chinese forays into the Maldives um, and Sri Lanka. Um Nepal um, just had its uh, a very significant election at the end of 2017, and politics there remain rocky. It remains to be seen if uh, KP Oli uh, will lead Nepal in a more balanced fashion this time around, or uh, or if he'll hew to his old ways as a um, explicitly pro-China president. Um, so there's there's a lot going on. I mean, I just want to hit on some of those issues, but we can you know maybe focus a bit on the Pakistan angle. Uh, so what do you make of that Trump tweet? I mean, where do you think U.S.-Pakistan relations might go this year? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you summed it up right, which is that, you know, the, these are not uh, new complaints, um, you know, with, with respect to U.S.-Pakistan uh, policy. There's been a lot of um, discontent uh, in the United States, particularly on Capitol Hill, on, on you know, in terms of what the pa- Pakistanis have been doing. Um, but it's sort of this continued trend, if you look at, you know, U.S.-Pakistan relations, more broadly, historically speaking, where it's the United States um, turning to Pakistan when it needs assistance in its Middle East, South Asia broader policy, but then sometimes being dissatisfied at, you know, Pakistan's sort of perceived uh, double game uh, when it comes to how it deals uh, 
with the United States, but also tries to protect its own interests, which don't necessarily, um, you know, converge entirely with what the United States is doing. So, you know, not surprising, but the way, again, the way in which Trump is doing this, which is through Twitter, as opposed to through policy statements, um, is the thing that's the most striking. And I think, you know, whether it's Pakistan or North Korea policy, the the continued trend we're seeing is um, whenever Trump takes a sort of position that you know defers remarkably or in terms of the conduct in which it's being conducted i think people say well you know maybe this could be for the better i mean he's shaking things up uh, maybe he could get things done and, and a lot of these people shared those views that he's articulating but i think the that has very clear downsides in terms of the um, the confusion and potential chaos that it creates and it's not clear that that has a particular upside it's one thing if the United States was clearly taking a strategic, um, you know, sort of rethinking of its South Asia and its Middle East strategy, um, with Trump sort of leading that charge. Um, but I don't sense that that's something that's actually going on. I think, you know, there's sort of a almost ambivalence among the, the, the foreign policy elite in terms of saying, oh, maybe Trump actually means it, maybe he doesn't, and he's just, you know, kind of letting off some steam and then moving on to the next hot-button foreign policy issue of the day. And I, I don't sense that this is a trend that's um, going to go away with respect to how he deals with it. Um, I think the other thing, uh, quickly, you know, just to touch on what you mentioned, I know you followed this very closely, the, the Doklam dispute and India-China relations in 2018, I, I think is another interesting relationship, which, you know, we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out. But certainly, you know, 2017 was, was a, a year where, you know, the, there were a lot of potential problem areas. And as we're looking for some of these bigger indicators, whether it's on Doklam or the or One Belt One Road, or even the U.S. policy towards the region, I, I think that's one big relationship which I think will continue to sort of make the headlines for 2018. For sure, um, no, totally, totally behind you on that. Especially uh, India just appointed a new foreign secretary who was actually the ambassador in Beijing during the Doklam dispute and took a very forceful position on that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're seeing, you know, India take a very, um, a very kind of pragmatic. Uh, a pragmatic and forward-looking position on its relationship with China. That's, uh, you know, that old formula of cooperation and competition, I think, still exists. Uh, it hasn't been eroded entirely by Doklam. Uh, Doklam, I think, was a huge blow to trust and obviously, I think, um, caused quite a bit of damage to the perceptions of China and Indian public opinion. Um, but uh, this relationship will certainly be one to watch. There's actually a standoff ongoing right now in Arunachal Pradesh that I think uh, might... Um, Again, we might see that spiral out of control. Uh, it's, it's difficult to tell in the early days of the Doklam dispute. It appeared it might end quickly, but uh, it ended up dragging on. It still goes on. There's still troops there. We just don't hear about it as much because they've uh, retreated a little bit, and they're not doing much. They're just sitting there holding their positions, uh, laying claim to that territory. So that border uh, continues to remain one of great interest, and we'll be following that at the Diplomat, obviously, this year. Um, on Pakistan, you know, I think... Uh, yeah, I mean, everything you said, I think, is bang on. I mean, you know, we've seen this before. Is this, is, is this the administration to make good on threats to Pakistan? A lot of people think yes. A lot of people are more skeptical, especially when the Trump administration wants to increase its presence in Afghanistan, which it appears to be sustaining. Um, how is that going to work if Pakistan closes off supply lines? Um, I have no clue. And will the United States, uh, you know, start conducting more unilateral uh drone operations, covert operations against terror targets in Pakistan's tribal areas uh, without necessarily Pakistani acquiescence. That could lead to Pakistan taking action. I mean, there's all these contingencies that uh, 
uh, I feel like haven't been thought through strategically right now. I think there's a general, um, you know, I mean, Trump has probably been briefed about U.S.-Pakistan relations and his gut reaction was unhappiness and he tweeted it out. But uh, this has been, you know, a longstanding problem in U.S.-Pakistan relationship is that um, the the two countries find it very difficult to uh, formally break up and it leads to a lot of resentment, a lot of um, trouble uh, seeing eye to eye. Uh, but I think what's interesting here is um, the Indian angle. I mean, uh, I feel like in Trump's first year, India has been among the Asian countries that has really had a good instinct for how to make the most of this administration. I mean, everything, you know, from the popularization of the Indo-Pacific concept to the return of the quadrilateral, I think a lot of that did have to do with kind of deft diplomacy from both India and Japan. Um, so I think, uh, you know, we'll see how uh, U.S.-India relations also uh, develop this year. Um <laughs> Yeah, this is uh, this is you know going to be quite an exciting year in Asia. I think um, it, it's never a dull year in Asia. Um, I mean, let's put it that way. But but 2018, I think, promises to uh, crystallize a lot of trends that we've been watching for a long time. And obviously, you know, we're we're looking forward to the inevitable curveballs. Um, obviously, uh, hopefully, you know, nothing as bad as what we witnessed last year. I'm hoping there will be less activity out of North Korea when it comes to ballistic missile testing. Although. Not expecting to really get that uh, wish granted. Um, obviously, you know, hoping for nothing like the surprising at the time Marawi City siege at the end of May, uh, which was a terrible tragedy. And um, I think, uh, you know, Southeast Asian countries will be looking to avoid that uh, at any cost. Um, and uh, and generally, you know, I mean, I think uh, there remains a lot of room for uh, geopolitical um, tension um, in this region. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think that sums it up for today, Prashant. What do you think? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a, a good note to end on. I think a lot of uh, potential challenges, but also, um, you know, lots of potential opportunities as well. Great. Well, uh, thanks a lot for listening to uh, this episode. Uh, like I said, this is our 150th episode for the podcast. So if you've been listening since episode one, thanks a lot for supporting the show and keeping with us uh, all this way. I know we uh, messed up the schedule a bit in the final days of 2017 due to the holidays and some travel, uh, but we'll try to bring things back to a regular um, schedule in, in 2018. That is my promise to you. Um, so thanks a lot for listening. Subscribe if you haven't subscribed yet so you don't miss future episodes. And if you have but you haven't left us a rating yet, please do so. It really helps get the word out about the show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>